Hello there. It's episode number 16 of Presentable, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. This week on the podcast, I'm joined by my friend Irene Al. She and I worked together a decade ago at Google, while the company was undergoing both tremendous growth and tremendous growing pains. We talk about what it was like to practice design at Google then, the cultural changes we undertook, and the remarkable evolution that the design of their products have gone through in the meantime. Have you been watching the news a little bit? Oh my gosh, it's crazy. Do you, do you follow Do you follow the news about Yahoo at all? Yeah, well, try not too close to. I try not to do that too closely because it is a little bit depressing. But the most yeah. stunning thing was the news about changing Yahoo's name to Altaba. It's like, where did that come from? <laughs> I mean, Yahoo's greatest asset was its brand, and then they're taking that away. So it's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. you were there. That was like ten years ago or so. You were head of You were head of design for Yahoo or user experience. What was your title? Uh, I was vice president of user experience and design. I guess I, yeah. you know, it must have been yeah, more yeah. than 10 years ago because it's been 10 years, more than 10 years since I joined Google. Oh, so yeah. I think it's been about 20 years since Yahoo. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. It's weird to think that, you know, like, I don't know, it, it feels like such an institution and to think of, uh, that it's just getting kind of pieced apart and that like even David Philo and, and Marissa aren't even going to be part of it. It's just, it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of done, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's scraps. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I guess it was 10 years ago that you and I worked at, at Google together, roughly. Yeah, I know, 2005. I know. No, I it was, was just 2005 and 2000. <laughs> it was 2006, when, 2006. I, when I got there, yeah. 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 And I was just telling somebody yesterday how you and I were fortunate to have the opportunity to work with each other in that climate, like you would have never gotten hired with your journalism background. No <laughs> you didn't know no how way. to code. No Larry way. would have never approved you <laughs> coming into Google. <laughs> no way. And yeah, <laughs> I'm surprised that even with the acquisition, he let me. <laughs> <laughs> but I was also telling this person, thank God for the Google acquisition of MeasureMap because you were so instrumental in helping to change the culture of design at Google, you know, because we really used your work on Google Analytics to showcase the power of great design process and the value that that would bring to the product and to the users and to the business. And, you know, that was just one of, it was the first of several projects that went on later to kind of show that. And I think people take that for granted now. Like I had this young woman show up at my yoga class last week and I had never seen her before. So I introduced myself to her and she mentioned that she was new to the area. She had moved from Boston. And I asked her, well, so what brings you out to the Bay Area? And she said that she works for Google. And I asked her, oh, what do you do there? I used to work for Google. She's like, I'm a UX researcher working on Google Play. And I was stunned. And she had no idea who I was. You know, I used to run the team, blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking about how, like, when you and I were there, like, as a result of our efforts, like, not only is the nature of, like, the, the importance and the role of design within Google elevated, but the way in which people do their work is dramatically shifted. And so for anybody who's a user researcher there now, they are not called usability analysts, which is what they were called 10 years ago. Right. They're paid about 20% right. more than they were back then because I pushed for changing all of the compensation structures. That would be to sort of make it more commensurate with the engineers they're working with? Exactly, yeah. A bit of a disparity, yeah. Yeah, and, and to elevate their work to go not only, you know, to expand beyond summative research and more into conceptual and informative user research. Mm -hmm. And so now it's such a normal part of the Google user experience practice that 
people kind of take that for granted, which is awesome. Yeah. Well, that's right. It's kind of you to say all of that. Um, it was always, you know, in, in retrospect, kind of the best of times and the worst of times. Mm -hmm. The work that we did on especially Google Analytics, which was it, it was politically really interesting because it was largely under the radar and was all set around a, a acquisition contract that had a set of milestones that it incorporated the redesign into it, which by and large meant everybody was instructed to leave us alone. These guys are working <laughs> on their milestones to get their, you know, their payout essentially. So don't bother those guys. So we went through that entire process, for example, never going to one of Marissa's design reviews. Mm-hmm. Because it was all just like, no, no, that's, an, that's all part of the M&A and, and Corp Dev has sorted that out. Let them be. Yeah. So. Well, that was also outside of her purview because she wasn't responsible for the advertiser facing stuff. So you yeah. were also lucky in that way. Yeah, yeah. So, so we got to do a lot of work that I think under the, the, that kind of scrutiny mm -hmm. that so much of the other products were under probably wouldn't have happened. Yes. But it was also then just this ability to work with tremendous group of engineers as well. But then on the other side, you know, the, I think Google at that time, there's two things. One design was incredibly nascent, mm -hmm. right? Like I've, I think I've even said this on the, on this podcast before, but I often told people that like being a designer at Google at that time was like being a baseball player in Europe. <laughs> People had heard of it, right? Like they, yeah, I, I, I know what you. I think I know what you do, but had no idea of how it was executed or done. Or oh, like so still, still so poorly misunderstood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it was also a time at Google where, like, when I started, I think my employee number was like four thousand five hundred something, mm. and when I left just three years later, we were up to twenty thousand employees. Mm -hmm. So it was this period of huge, like, the weight of that happening on the kind of management infrastructure and the process and all that kind of stuff. Whew. It was just really hard to manage, to to know who worked for whom and where the priorities were and all of that. Oh, it yeah. It, and it was, crazy it, it was designed to be that way, too. They deliberately set it up to be that way so that you wouldn't have too much management. Right. You know, like management was a bad word. And so everything was inherently bottom up and you couldn't tell anybody what to do. And I remember when I started um, building some structure into the team because I had 60 direct reports when I joined the company. Yeah. And then three, you know, within the first three months, I had to write performance reviews for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and so when I started hiring in uh, more senior people and putting more structure into the team, it was met with some trepidation and resentment because it was counter to the Google culture at the time. Totally. And there was a yep. lot of um, worry that we were making the team too top down or things like that. Um, but really it was about, you know, people development, you know, having a mentorship and a prototype to follow for like, how can I grow my career and become a better designer? And then also to create better alignment between the organization and the rest of product development, because we were kind of spread across so many projects. Um, and uh, not doing a very good job at any one thing because everybody was kind of scattered everywhere. So yeah, it was it was hard. Um, you know that that bottom up culture. Um, you know it and it's it's turned around now, um, but it's it, it has been a long road. Yeah, yeah. Well, it feels like there's a lot of maturation that's gone on at Google. I mean, especially the split into Alphabet and a lot of fiscal responsibility, which I think yeah. puts more pressure on that accountability of all the bottom up stuff that's happening. Mm -hmm. You can't just go off and and start building stuff because it's interesting to you. I think you probably need a lot more justification, which I think probably helps overall. I don't know. Mm -hmm. it's a, that's a uh, there's probably lots of innovation theory from 
Harvard Business Review there <laughs> or something. I don't know. But. Well, you know, speaking of your employee number, so, you know, when, when around the time in 2006 when we were there, um, there were about 60 designers and about 40 user researchers. And by the time I left in 2012, we had about 300, 350. Somebody told me recently that um, the number of people at Google with like UX of some sort in their job title, like tops over 2000 now. Wow. Yeah. Well, I can imagine like there's just, uh, there's a giant group of people working on Android, you know, that yeah. didn't even exist while we were there or just barely started to exist while we were there. And I don't know, it, just, it seems to show like, yeah. I think the, the products look great. You know, by and large, there's there's little dead ends and back alleys that you can still get into. But but overall, it's been I, I think the whole suite of products works, holds together exceptionally well. It's wonderful. I think one of the biggest turning points was when all the functions were decentralized into different product areas um, so that suddenly the executives responsible for their own product areas could allocate their own headcount and distribute like how much they give to engineering versus product versus design, whereas before it was managed centrally from Larry. Mm. And so it was like one gigantic pool with no sense of priorities. So I think that has fueled the, the explosive growth in design for sure. So it's kind of an interesting case study in how organizational design kind of affects the investment in design. Yeah. And, and I think... Um, you know, it's interesting, again, back to the news, this week is the 10-year anniversary of uh, when the iPhone was launched, the keynote mm -hmm. that, that Steve Jobs gave. And I think that had a pretty profound effect on Google design. Right? Absolutely. With, with the, you know, where it, Android, to be competitive, needed to do something like material design, mm -hmm. which my understanding, I only have anecdotal stories from people I know, but but was really about Larry Page going to all of the, uh, you know, his very, very senior engineering leaders saying, you have to do this very top down we are going to like unify everything and it's all going to look the same it's going to be this system and if you don't you don't get your budget or your bonus or whatever you know that like, is right that is exactly yeah. what happened that is what ha and 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 kudos to larry too for evolving his viewpoint on design because you know i remember in 2006 2007 uh after i had hacked the hiring committee to try to open up opportunities to be able to hire visual designers onto the team my headcount was shut down by Larry in 2007 because he became very unhappy at the fact that I started hiring people with graphic design backgrounds as opposed to computer science backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And when I pleaded to him and they tried to make the case for building more diversity into the team, not only diversity in types of people, but skill set as well, like you really need to have that in a user experience organization. His definition of design at the time was that it was more about how things work than how it looks, which is great because I spent the first, you know, I spent 10 years at Yahoo trying to evangelize how design is not just about how things look, but also how things work. <laughs> and right, so here it was right. like the exact opposite. And I asked him, what, what is the aesthetic experience that you want to convey to users that represents what Google is? And he paused and he looked at me and with that grin, he said, pine. Do you remember what Pine is? <laughs> I used to use Pine way back a million years ago. Text-based email on Unix. <laughs> That's right. That's what he wanted Google to look like in 2006, 2007. And by 2011, he was talking about the importance of beauty and white space. You know, like before that, we were saying, oh, information density, information density, because we're trying to make right. the interfaces like efficient. The belief was that nobody scrolled and things like that. And he said at a company-wide all hands, like you have to appreciate the value of white space too. Don't underestimate the value of white space because 
sometimes the white space can help users better focus on what is most meaningful and important. And, you know, like those of us who had been around for a while, we were just like, who is this guy? <laughs> He's totally different. He's like done a 180 from where he was, you know, five years before. So I really give Larry props for evolving his design sensibilities and, and how he thinks about design. And I think it has ultimately built Google as a consumer brand that people trust more. Yeah, This definitely. idea that it, it feels so much more put together, yet still maintains its sort of almost irreverent qualities, especially around the, the brand and the primary colors and the way that they had been used and the way that they were retained. But, you know, now you see like a Google Now or Google Assistant commercial during the Super Bowl or something, and it feels, oh, this feels like a worldwide global brand that, that everybody knows and can trust. And, and you're right, that's a remarkable evolution. And, mm -hmm. and in a pretty short amount of time, to be, to be honest, it was just a few years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's how it is when the CEO gets personally involved. That's, that's the fastest and best way for culture change to happen. Uh, do you think it's always top down that way? Is that like for especially a company of that s scope and scale? No, it doesn't always have to be that way. And that's not the only way. Um, and you can make bottom change, but it takes a lot longer and it takes a lot more coaxing and cajoling. Um, I mean, I think about like the convergence of Google apps, like you might remember how we tried to get all of Google's products on a unified uh, look and feel because <laughs> everything was fragmented and there was no style guide. And we had different efforts like, you know, Kana, which was like these different visual design explorations for what Google could be, even though we had like maybe three visual designers on the whole project. Right. And then it evolved into Fast UI, which was really to uh, rebrand it, to sell it to engineering, to make them feel like, you know, having a unified look and feel that looks crisp and polished doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be slow. And we managed to sell that to all the leaders of Google Apps and, and, and then also the advertiser-facing products. And uh, eventually, these products converged, but it was one product at a time and mm. very opportunistically. So it'd be like, okay, if we're going to make these changes to Google Docs, you know, these functional changes to Google Docs, well, while we're in there, we might as well change the code so that it looks more like this. Can't you see this looks so much better? And then it, this is the vision we're working towards. Everything will be more consistent. And so it was just like one little sidebar at a time. <laughs> yeah. And that overall convergence eventually did happen, but it was over 18 months versus like when, when Kennedy came out uh, in 2012, I think, um, that took like five or six months. It was just a lot faster because Larry told everybody, you have to do this. Whereas like in the bottom up way, we had to sell it through and people would be like, well, we have better things to work on and we're not going to get promoted if we work on this and that sort of thing. So um, refresh my memory on, on Kennedy. That was a uh... So that was pre that predated material, but that was the oh, very first uh, unified look and feel that came out after Larry became CEO. Okay. Was that part of Android or was that across all the web apps? It was across all the web apps, uh, across all mm. of Google. It wasn't, yeah. Right, right, so, right, right, right. Um, Okay. I, re I remember when that happened. I just didn't know the, that, that it was called that. Yeah. The, the code name wasn't very public, but yeah. It's interesting that you, you mentioned like the rebranding of that uh, internal project to call it Fast UI. Mm -hmm. I, and I remember that. And, and I just, I can, I can vividly remember like going into meetings 
uh, with engineers who, you know, were like directing the work around, uh, say, Gmail. And, and the conversations that we would have would all be about milliseconds. Yes. Like, you know, they, <laughs> they would, there would be some. And the only time I would go to those meetings is if one of the designers who worked for me was having an argument with his engineers, his or her engineers, and it would bring me in for help, right? Yeah. And, and it was always like, we think this is a more intuitive interface. And the engineers are going, yeah, but it goes from 300 to 375 milliseconds per click. <laughs> I'm like, whew. You know, yeah. and my whole career, I had been, I had always been, you know, because I was always working with big companies doing in the adaptive path world and lots of publishing projects because it was all early web, right? Yeah. And I was always the one that was like, you have no idea what it's like out there, like yeah. the, the varying loading speeds and these pages take way too long. And God, publishing even to this day in 2017 haven't changed. Like they're still way too slow and, yeah. and all of that. But this idea of like they had instrumented every single function in the applications and they knew every the amount of milliseconds. And I think that all came from the, the history of the search results page yes. where they had a literal dollar amount per millisecond of delay that they would just lose yeah and they you know and they just knew right mm -hmm. you you had even 10 milliseconds which is a, an imperceptible amount of time but it cost us a million dollars a day don't yeah. do that that's right i mean i think the insight was right they were totally right that like if the site is not performant nobody's going to use it so it doesn't matter how great looking your interface is you know but um like web like web technologies had also evolved in that time frame too. And so like, whereas there was a tremendous aversion to like rounded corners and things like that, it's like, okay, well actually, you know, that's not as expensive as it used to be, for example, you know, things like that. Or you have things, you know, toolkits like bootstrap and things like that, that allow you to kind of preload uh, different attributes. And then it becomes very cheap uh, from a performance perspective to create these uh, visual effects or aesthetic effects, you know. So uh, I think it took a while for the company to catch up to the to, to what technology could do and what that meant for latency as well. And there was never any conversation about the perception of speed as well, right? This this mm. this idea that uh, it may be slower in milliseconds, but people are going to feel more successful. And therefore, we'll tolerate it better than if you do it more quickly, but it's more opaque. Yeah, actually, we did do a study on this. We did collect data on this on Google Reader. And again, it was just kind of like Google Analytics, like we were talking about. They're, you know, under the radar, you know, no, everybody's leaving them alone. You know, they only had like a million or two million users or something like that. And <laughs> they, as they started rolling out fast UI, they noticed that um, just with these visual design improvements, people perceived the site to be faster and better performing. And um, we had data that showed it. Um, so that was really remarkable. And we actually pulled out some of that data to kind of champion fast UI as well. Was that qualitative? Like, were you doing that in usability lab or was that quantitative? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. There were comments that were like, wow, it's so fast. This looks, mm. you know, this feels great, you know, that sort of thing. And so it was a combination of qualitative and quantitative. This week's episode of Presentable is sponsored by Dice.com. Dice has been helping tech professionals advance their career for more than 20 years. They have the tools and insights needed to give you an edge. The Dice Career mobile app 
is the premier tool for managing your tech career from anywhere. With thousands of positions from top companies, you'll find exactly what you're looking for. Wondering what's next in your career? DICE's new career pathing tool will help you learn more about new roles based on your job title and skills. They'll even show you which skills you'll need to make the move. The DICE Careers Market Value Calculator allows you to understand what your skills are worth. Discover your market value based not only on your job title and location, but based on the specific skills you have. Don't just look for a job. Manage your tech career with DICE. Download the DICE mobile app and learn more at dice.com presentable. Thanks to DICE for sponsoring this show and all of Relay FM. So what was the culture like when you got there? Because you got there before I did, I think uh, about a year before I did. I don't know. I, I don't remember. I, I thought for some reason that you had joined maybe a couple of months before I did, but oh. I, I don't remember. It's like all a blur <laughs> a now. Long really. time ago, <laughs> yes. Try not to dwell on it too much. You know, it's funny. Google circa 2006. First of all, all the designers were required to know how to code. Like Larry personally reviewed every single applicant who was going up for uh, a job offer. And back in those days, it was Java, like none of this like (laughs) JavaScript. Oh, I know how to use React. So so everybody had to know how to code. The ratio of designers to engineers was actively managed. And that was part of the reason why my headcount got shut down in 2007, because when I hacked hiring committee and, you know, addressed the uh, systematic issues that made it difficult for me to hire, Larry became very concerned that we were getting, we, we, we were growing design too quickly compared to how engineering was growing. The design organization was very flat and very junior, as I mentioned before, and user research was referred to as usability analysts, and their work was much more like design QA, you know, it was like old school, Jacob Nielsen, like separate design from usability studies, and you can't have them working too closely together, otherwise designers might compromise the research. Human-computer interaction, right? Like, what's well, and that? that's, like, like... you know, that's my background too. So, you know, like I am hardcore HCI, but like I was pushing for greater collaboration between design and user research. And, um, and unfortunately, the leadership of the usability team at that time was very much against it. So that was, that was a cultural clash as well. And then Google's look and feel was dictated by, you know, countless A-B tests that were done on search results. And there was no style guide or design infrastructure. And the philosophy, at least the thinking at the time, was like, you know, this is what Marissa said to me. She said, 95% of our users use Google search when they are using Google. Therefore, all of Google's look and feel should be dictated by the successful outcomes of A-B testing on Google search. And I knew, and I had experienced this before at Yahoo, like the search results interface is incredibly fragile. Just like pixel level changes to the interface can have significant impact on how people experience the site. So like whether you bullet point the search results, if you number the search results, if you change the letting of the typography on the page, you know, if you uh, change the shade of green that's used to display the URL, the source URL, which we did at the time. I don't even think that's done anymore. I don't remember. You know, just little changes like that would have significant impact. And that's real revenue. And so I understand completely why Google needed to A-B test everything. But it was also really, um, it was paralyzing for <laughs> everybody else. And, you know, so like if, if A-B testing found that underlining the links was the best interface um, for people, which Logically, that makes sense because it provides a visual target uh, when you're scanning the search results page. Does it necessarily mean that anything that is a clickable link across all of Google needs to be 
a blue underlined link. Well, if you look at Google Apps like Gmail, everything in the interface is clickable. So if you underlined it all and made it all blue, that would look terrible. So that was, that was really the, the tension at Google back then. It, it, God, it, it denies any other sort of context for what people are trying to do in any other mm -hmm. product, right? Yeah. Like the search results page, to, to be fair, it is both the, probably the most valuable real estate of any web property ever, with the exception of maybe now the newsfeed at Facebook, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. But it's also an ordered list of 10 items. Like it's a very, mm -hmm. very simple design problem. So A-B testing that, I, I totally agree, absolutely, to further optimize and further yeah. optimize because with the scale of traffic and the scale of revenue coming through that, those optimizations are material in a significant way. But then saying, yeah. therefore, that's what a list of email messages in an inbox should look like, that just abandons any sense of context yes. for, for a task or a goal or a motivation that a user has. Yes. And I think that was the tension that we were going through at the time then. That's exactly right. And, you know, there was this New York Times article that famously disclosed that we were algorithmically calculating all of the 41 different shades of blue that right, could possibly right. be used for the blue underline links on the search results page. And <laughs> I'll tell you, the origin behind that effort was because uh, Doug Bowman and I were trying to work with Marissa to um, converge the look and feel across Google and create a style guide and, you know, have, have, have a common look and feel for Google. And Doug had primarily spent a lot of his energy on Google Apps and proposed a specific shade of blue for, for Google Links. And so when we presented this to Marissa, she was like, well, we can do this really easily. We just calculate all the shades of blue and see what performs best on search. And then whatever the winning shade of blue is, that's what we use across Google. And so, so that happened. And it turned out the winning shade of blue was like on the exact opposite spectrum from the <laughs> yeah. blue that was proposed. You know, Doug had proposed like a greenish shade of blue and the winning shade of blue was like a purplish shade of blue. Uh -huh. So that was not very, you know, that, that was, that was not going to be successful in Google apps, but uh, Doug ended up leaving in a huff and very publicly, I should say, which I still get asked about, Oh yeah. Um, which I'd rather forget. But, you know, for those who want to know, it's like one of the things that we were also trying to do was to um, define what the standard modal dialogue box might look like on Google. And one of the conversations turned to like, how wide should the blue border be around the dialogue box? And should it be three, four, or five pixels? And so we had reviewed this with Marissa. She's like, well, you should mock them all up and, you know, let, let's, let's see. And in a following meeting, Doug had said, you know, four really looks best, but he didn't bring the mock-ups. And so she said, well, I'm not approving anything if you don't show this to me. And it was just, you know, they, they, they did not have a working relationship with each other. And, right. um, you know, she had very good reasons for where she was coming from. And I think he, Doug was used to being the person with the final say. And I think having to work with somebody else where you've got to work within that, I think was really restricting for him. So it wasn't like we were A-B testing three, four, or five pixels, but the blog post made it sound like that's what we were doing when actually the A-B testing was really done on these 41 shades of blue. And, and that was very legitimate because it, it, was, it was a significant difference on, on the users. 
So it's tough. I mean, these things are always so complex, you know, and from the outside oh, totally. and from the outside, it just seems so, you know, ridiculous or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, uh, I mean, Doug's an old friend of mine. Mm -hmm. I worked with him back at Hotwired yeah. in the early, early days. He, and he's a wonderful designer, like super he's a, talented. He's a fantastic designer. I also think he got totally caught off guard by how his blog post, which he thought a few hundred designers would read, got picked up by the New York Times. You know, like, oh, I know. <laughs> so in, in the end of it all, he went on to become creative director at Twitter in the early yeah. days mm -hmm. with Ev and did remarkable work over there. And, and Google, you know, like we said, matured in its own way. So yeah. at the end of it all, it all worked out for everybody. But yeah, I remember that. That was, it, it turned into this, this very like Venus versus Mars, right? Like <laughs> very, very didactic. It's either engineering or it's design, which was how it was which I guess is just the media wa yeah. wants that kind of conflict. That's right. But like Google is being torn apart. Like, should it be, should design or should it be just pure data? And I'm like, oh, that's not it's not it, like well, that. Yeah. It's, it's not like that at all. <laughs> it's not like but, that. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. I mean, I was just reflecting on the culture and how we, how we changed it, you know, um, moving from this kind of environment where there was no diverse uh, skills on the team and we were by definition outnumbered by engineering and product management. And the designers were not involved early and upfront, so they didn't have credibility with stakeholders. Uh, they had no career path or mentorship, and product decisions were not informed by qualitative user research. And Google's look and feel was very fragmented. Like that was the landscape in 2006. Yeah. Uh, so what? Uh, God, how did you start tackling that project? I mean, I know that that you you started a layer of more senior design management that I, I became a part of, mm -hmm. but uh, there was some other stuff too. Yeah. So, you know, we, we hacked hiring and tried to build in more diverse skills. We had to figure out how to meet his hiring requirements and still bring in diversity. So it just pushed us to be a little bit smarter and harder. We ended up introducing like a coding exercise for a select portion of candidates. And so then as we demonstrated that we were being more vigorous about making sure that some designers entering into the team could code, that he started to relax some of his own requirements around like bringing in more diversity. So we, you know, developing the organization, I think was also key in being able to attract and retain really good people. So we re redefined all the job ladders and titles, like we renamed usability analysts to user researchers. Um, all the designers were called user interface designers, and I had retitled that to user, exper uh, user experience design uh, yep. to elevate yep. like what people did, that it was more strategic. And then with more design managers, we had a push to work on fewer projects and do those really well. So we aggressively prioritized and then we communicated back out, this is what we're working on and why. So that was kind of the beginning of laying the foundation towards having a higher performing team. And then as we shifted towards more formative user research, similar to Google Analytics, like we tried to identify projects that were significant but flying a little bit under the radar, where they would be a little bit more open to process change and where we had a receptive stakeholder team where they would set us up to be successful. So there were pockets of projects like this, like Google Analytics was definitely one. I think Google AdWords was another one. Google Reader was another one, Google Mobile. And so we started to plant the seeds for doing more upfront research that would help inspire and help the team prioritize, like what are the user needs that we're trying to focus on? So that was kind of the beginning of like, making sure that whatever was built was really directed towards empathizing with users and solving their problems rather than like, oh, what cool thing can we build? <laughs> right. And I had hired Charles Warren, who came from IDEO, to help change the culture in that way through like a more 
formally structured process. And this was really the birth of design sprints. I think one of his first projects was like this Google mobile initiative in Africa, where he went to Uganda and did field research and led this team through this experience of like figuring out like, what are the key things that we could build on SMS phones, you know, like through SMS text messaging that could really change people's lives there. And it was really eye-opening for the rest of the user experience team to see how one could go through a process like this and use formative user research to inspire and drive innovation. And in the end, come out with a product that was really meaningfully useful to people. And so that was like the birth of design sprints. And we didn't call it design sprints at the time. But as we started to do more and more of this, the other realization that we came to was that, okay, by definition, design will always be outnumbered by engineering. There is no possible way we can hire fast enough to cover all the projects. So we have to manage this better. So one way we managed it better was to prioritize. Uh, Another way we managed it was to build design infrastructure like style guides and things like that to make it easier for people to do the right thing. And, you know, so even if they didn't have a designer, they could still get the right, you know, button style or whatever, or the right UI framework. And um, we tackled new hire training in which you drove that life of a user presentation where any new hire that came into Google would be indoctrinated in this whole process of design thinking. And um, right. that was a Let me wonderful. tell you about that because yeah. that was interesting for me in a couple of ways. Um, one, yes, I think it was a, a good, uh, almost political move mm-hmm. right, to put that into so that literally every single, or at least at the Mountain View campus, every mm-hmm. every new user that, or every new Googler, Noogler, <laughs> <sorry. Yeah. laughs> every Noogler that would uh, come in uh, on their first day, they, they got a, I think I had a 45 minute session with them on, on user experience. Personally, this was me giving a 45 minute talk, the same talk every week over and over again. <laughs> I think I did it for two years. Oh my gosh. <laughs> which if you ever want to get good at public speaking is an amazing <laughs> thing to do because I realized in, in those talks just how much audience can vary the mood in the room and things like that. Cause I'm giving the same talk. I've got the same yeah. energy. I'm pausing the exact same amount of time for each joke. Like it's, it's the <laughs> same every time. It's a little bit like, you know, a comedian on the road doing <laughs> nightclub after nightclub and seeing what works and what if I tweak this and everything. Anyway, I got way better at giving presentations by doing that. So that's thanks awesome. For that. <laughs> but when I also, when I talk about the growth at Google at that time, it would be every Monday and there'd be 150 people in there. Yeah. That's how many new people were starting that week at Google. It was, oh my God, it was crazy. The, the growth we went through. Yeah. But the presentation was, here are the steps of like how we discover the needs of our users by doing this qualitative upfront research before any code has been written. And you could just see engineers looking at me like, what, you do what? You know, like having never heard of any of those concepts before. So I think that was pretty powerful. Yeah, it was. And now if you think about it, and I don't know if it's still running now, but I, I think some flavor of it is. And so that means that 99.9% of the employees that are working there have been exposed to life of a user, which is great. You know, this legacy continues even past you. So that's really cool. (laughs) 
So there's a couple of things that, that you talked about. One, that, that it was very interesting, that process that, that Charles Warren brought from mm -hmm. IDEO into mm -hmm. Google. It was ultimately just a, a way of facilitating almost brainstorming sessions, right? Yes. Um, and that's, that's one thing I was going towards was like, you know, when we figured out we needed to scale effectively and that there was no way we could hire designers fast enough, it's like key to our strategy was to create a program that would train designers how to become facilitators. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And to do so in both an incredibly like warm and human way. Mm -hmm. I, I remember Charles just over and over again saying you have to get everybody around the table comfortable yeah. and open and feeling safe and all of these things. Uh, and that was part of it. And, and the other part is you have to be objective. You can steer things in, in directions, but you can't be there with an agenda. You have to let the ideas come out and the group will decide. Yeah. And he has, you know, voting with, with you know, the, the dot stickers yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And and there's a direct line, like you said, to that, to the sprint process that is so well known today because the designers who we were doing this with, you know, people like Jake Knapp and Braden mm -hmm. Kowitz went on to Google Ventures, left the UX team at, at Google, went to Google Ventures and now do it week after week after week with other portfolio companies and then wrote this amazing book. So again, the legacy of this kind of stuff that was happening at Google 10 years ago. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I, I learned so much from Charles and um, he has this really magnificent way of making people feel comfortable and, and engaged and safe. You know, like that's one thing that I remember that was like really remarkable when I worked with him was how he could make a whole room of people, whether it was like a hundred people or just five people, feel emotionally safe enough to just put any crazy idea out there and, and how he would kind of manage the team. If there was anybody who kind of spoke out and say, well, I think that's a terrible idea. You know, he would like call them out and say, you know, that's, we'll save our feedback for some other time, but he would make them feel safe at the same time too. Um, right. And it's like this very warm and fuzzy quality that you don't necessarily learn. You know, it's not like a, it's not like something you learn from reading in a book. Or, you know, something you get from going to like the best university in the country or whatever, you know, all these things that no, Google no, no, no. values when hiring, you know, they're looking at the resume, they're looking at your GPA and what did you major in and things like that. But like the, the, the qualities that Charles brought um, really transcended all of that. And, and to be able to teach other people how to do that, which is really the his train the facilitators program. That's what that was all about. Yeah. Uh, was was a wonderful thing that um, I think is often really overlooked. Yeah, yeah. No, it's I think one of the fundamental skills designers need to have. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, to be honest, the better they get at it, the more power they have in an organization. That's right. And I th I think that's something that well, certainly you don't get either in the more traditional design schools or any of these like, you know, general assembly where you, you learn to be a designer in six weeks or twelve weeks or whatever. Yeah. But this idea of as a way of, of, yeah, you know, being powerful in large organizations or even small ones for that matter. Mm -hmm. That's right. I mean, I do think that that is, at the end of the day, what makes somebody really successful or not. And when I'm interviewing people, like I spend a good chunk of time, because, you know, you can, you can see how good someone is or how they think, you know, based on their body of work that they bring to the table, like their portfolio or school projects or things like that. So when I interview people, I end up spending a, a good chunk of time talking about like their inner life you know yeah. and how they manage difficult situations and things like that it's all the soft skills it is eq you know because i think that at the end of the day will 
dictate, you know, how successful somebody is within an organization. And especially as a designer, because um, design is one of these fields where everybody has an opinion, everybody can call themselves a designer. And, uh, you know, how can you justify what, how your design is better than this other way that I think it should be done, that sort of thing. So designers especially need to have really strong emotional intelligence and soft skills to be successful in, in their line of work. Well, when you told the story of a lot of the changes that you made, the two things that stood out for me are this, this notion of the emotional intelligence and putting that to work. And so much of what you were talking about is, is HR work. Like you change, <laughs> right? Like, and, yeah. and, and here you are as a designer with this career of making great experiences and how much of what you had to do was changing the job tree and the job titles and, and just positioning things to give these people more influence in the organization with the end result, hopefully being better products, but to elevate the practice inside the organization by using the tools you had available, hiring job tree promotions you know peer review all that kind of stuff that's i don't know we've talked a lot on this podcast in the past like i talked with andy budd about design leadership mm -hmm. uh, i talked with margaret gold stewart about her career you mm -hmm. know margaret worked with us at the same time yeah. there but, uh, and now is off at facebook doing remarkable things and how much of leadership is just being really good at understanding how the organization you're in functions and then trying to find as much leverage as you can inside of that that functionality. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And it's just kind of like you have to start where you are, you know, have an idea for where, you know, what success looks like or where you want to take things. And then you, you, you use all possible resources that you have at your disposal and just take baby steps at a time, you know? Yeah, it's, it's true. I don't think I would ever want to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, at that scale, I, mean, yeah. you and, I know you and I both work as startups now, and I'll tell you, it, it's just a joy. <laughs> so, it really is. I love anyway. it. <laughs> we'll have to have a whole other conversation on design and venture capital. Um, yeah, I yeah. And you, so you are now, uh, uh, like me, a design partner. Uh, you're at Coastal Ventures, right? Yes, yes. And so I, I work with the companies in our portfolio to help them be successful. Yeah, I have in front of me here like three pages of notes of things I wanted to ask you about that. And then we started talking about Google. So <laughs> so definitely let's come back in a, in a couple of months and, and, and talk about that because I think that's the whole other side of the coin, which is the influence that you can have at inception for a company as opposed to um, the change of a large and rapidly growing enterprise like Google was. They're very, very different uh, and take, a, I think, a whole bunch of different skills. So Yes. Yeah, I look forward to that. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that for sure. Uh, so where can people find out more about you? You're on Twitter at Irene Ow, right? I'm on Twitter at Irene Ow and on LinkedIn and Facebook and Medium. Uh, my Medium publication, I call it Design Your Life. Um, yeah. And so that's where I've posted a bunch of writings and essays. Sometimes there are transcripts of speeches that I give and things like that. So. Yeah, I will absolutely. give all our listeners some homework in that you wrote an ebook for O'Reilly on design and VC. Yes, which you participated in. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, it was good. There's, um, I think it's great. And, and so they should all find that. I'll put a link to it in the, in the show notes as well. Uh, that's free, right? Yes, it is. It's free. Yeah, so they can. All right, so everybody has to go read that so that when you come back, they uh, get some foundation for uh, our next conversation. How's that sound? Excellent. I look forward to it. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks so much for being on the show. This is a great conversation. It's always good to catch up. Thanks for having me. I miss you. I look forward to seeing you again soon. This has been Presentable, and I'm Jeff Fiend. 
Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you have feedback or comments or questions or anything, really, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on the web at relay.fm slash presentable or on Twitter at presentable FM. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.